The United States Patent and Trademark Office wants to modernize its tech stack, but to accomplish its ambitious goal, Jamie Holcomb, the CIO of the USPTO, has two main objectives, snapping out of a spell that binds people to age-old projects and scaling its current way of doing things. What I saw was the ability to actually outsource a lot of our infrastructure. And that means not actually having the data center that we currently do in Alexandria. Although it's very efficient, what we need to do is have resiliency. And so what I'd like to do is create the ability for our applications to work in the cloud, on the internet, instead of having to come to the USPTO's data center. And so that's what we're doing right now. We've stabilized our core applications to the point where in COVID-19, we've been able actually to increase our productivity metrics. It's unbelievable how great we're doing in this limited environment. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Jamie details how his office is bringing its technology stack into the 21st century. And he talks about how they are expediting the time it takes for a patent to get approved thanks to the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning techniques. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a new type of guest. We have the CIO of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, Jamie Holcomb. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I'm honored to be included on your podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation. There you go. And you're a West Point grad as well? I am 1985. Well, the, I'm bringing that up because every time I talk to someone from West Point, they're like, they overly index successful. You know, I'm not from West Point, but I've, <laughs> I've met everyone I meet from West Point overly indexed is successful. So we're, it's going to be awesome to hear your career all the way from West Point to where you are today as the CIO of the U.S. Patent Office. Well, I'm looking forward to that journey because it certainly has been a hell of a ride. So let's get into it right out the gate, because typically most people don't think, I mean, most people kind of outside of government work, they don't think of government offices as, you know, forward thinking, transformative. You know, most people think of government offices as slow moving and stodgy, but you're trying to change that at the U.S. Patent Office. Talk to me about what you've been up to in the last few years since you took over as the CIO there. Yeah, thanks a lot. What we're doing at the USPTO, which is different from everywhere else, is trying to be as innovative as the applications that are coming in. We should be known as the innovation agency. And so because of that, and because of that tagline, I'm really using that to transform the whole culture from one of huge competence. The the first thing that happened when I got into the USPTO was I realized that most people have an average tenure of around 20 years. And you're like, wait a second, then everybody's leaving. No, people at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, they stay for 30 and 35 years before they retire. And that's unheard of. So we're taking this workforce of 13,000 individuals 
who have a highly competent background and experience knowing exactly what they're doing. And I'm trying to tell them, wait a second, we need to do things differently. And they're like, well, wait a second, we've been doing this since the inception of our country. In fact, patent number one was for an agriculture compost. And George Washington actually signed it. So they've been doing this for a long time. Anyway, I am really asking them to get out of that government bureaucracy, credentialing, compliance, and regulatory (laughs) mode. What I'm asking them to do is think differently. Make your decisions and thought process about three different things, how you can do them better, cheaper, and faster. And so that's really what I'm asking. That's the culture shift that we're going for, because in essence, it requires that commercial mindset in order to change the way people do their business. And so one of the other things that's unique about the Patent and Trademark Office is the fact that we are fee funded. We are not taxpayer funded. So we have an obligation to make sure that every penny of that fee And all those uh, fees that are paid for both patents and trademarks throughout the life of the patent and trademark are used and squeezed so that the fee payers get the biggest bang for their buck. Fun fact about myself, or maybe not a fun fact about myself, but I I did get a trademark approved a while ago. It was for a dog toy company I started back in 2006 called Dog Nasty. Uh, And I also tried to file a patent. So I'm familiar with the process. And you are right. The process is... I'm going to date my. In 2006, it felt slow. There was it definitely took you know months, maybe a year to get feedback and stuff like that. And I'm wondering for yourself because you're talking about moving it into a modern place. Because now, when it comes to software, especially, you're talking about I'm sure software. The moment someone let's say creates a new process or function and they submit for a patent, you know that window of time that is not granted or whatever. There's a lot of opportunity to be copied, replicated, pulled apart. You know, software moves at such a fast pace. Talk about what the U.S. Patent Office and what you have to do in order to make sure that the patent approval processes and things can be sped up to match the pace of technology innovation as it is today. Yeah, that's a great question because everybody thinks of the old adage, patent pending. Yeah. Well, that patent pending, what they actually call it is pendency. So that's a term of art within the community such that the time you apply and the time you're either awarded or rejected. That's called pendency. And what I'd like to do is every three years, cut that pendency in half. Now that's a hell of a goal. And I've been told that I'm crazy to even say it out loud. But the reason that you have to have those big goals is you've got to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. You have to get rid of all the noise that's around. Well, we can't do that because of this. And we can't do that because of this. And the other thing I want to bring into the fact is, you know, when I did my startups, the fact of the matter is every little penny is precious. And so if you're spending money on compliance, that's one penny that you can't be using to show investors that this is a great idea. It really works. So you have to spend whatever is minimally required on compliance in order to get that idea out in front. Because if we burden everybody with the compliance and the security and you got to do this and you got to do that, you'll never get to the innovative and creative functions that need to be there. So what I'm trying to say is 
guys, this is not just about fees and regulations. This is about a entrepreneur, somebody who has had an idea for 30 and 35 years. They retire from their corporation and they're finally freed from all those corporate bonds. And what they put in their mind is, I'm going to do this. and I'm going to put a patent out there. And we are spending their hard earned retirement. And we got to tell them whether or not it can be awarded as unique and novel, or if somebody has already done it on the other side of the world. And so I really do think that the examiners take that mission to heart. The quicker that we can get those awarding or rejections, the better it is for the entire economy, because we don't want all that private equity and the other funding held up because some bureaucrat is trying to make a decision about whether it's unique and novel or not. We need to get to those decisions faster. And I can tell you all the things we're trying to do to get there, but whew. Yeah, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear some examples because, you know, you, you mentioned the one part, you know, it's probably pretty tough to make it go faster, which is like the examiner process. Who It sounds like that's pretty manual. I, I would love to think that artificial intelligence could be better at examining previous patents and previous submissions to know whether or not something is unique and novel. I don't know if we're there yet, but I'd love to hear some of the things that you're doing at the office that accelerates this process. You're exactly right. One of the things that we're doing is using artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning, to create algorithms and neural network feedback loops, which require a man in the loop to verify and validate whatever the algorithms produce as output. So in our searching with the examiners, we allow them to categorize and classify to the point where you can search on concepts instead of just individual words. Give me an example of that concept. Yeah, that ability actually accelerates the, your ability, the examiner ability, to bring things within certain data sets and then do comparison between data sets instead of individual piece points. And that's an important concept too, because the quicker you can get the large sets, the quicker you can get that small set to say whether it's unique and novel. So what we actually have created, along with our partners in algorithmic searching, is the fact that it can come through and result in a relative ranking, as well as a thumbs up or thumbs down as whether it helped the examiner or not. So then we actually have algorithms which are creating an aggregation of whether or not these algorithms work for this specific individual examiner as well as does it work for the classification or the art unit and whether or not these algorithms actually apply to this art unit or not. And so it really gets very complex very quickly, but based on your work input and the applications that you're given then, we can then classify and push apart quicker and better with more quality the ability to get the right patent to the right examiner at the right time. So walk me through that concept search, because I think that's pretty fascinating. You mentioned it in your answer. Let's use an example of someone who's applying for a patent. Let's assume it's a technology patent, and we'll use product because software is a little tougher. We'll go into software in just a second. But let's imagine someone invents a new type of glue. Let's just pretend. Just glue, right? It's a new type of glue, new chemical, like everything's new. Their duty now is to prove to the US Patent Office that this is novel and new, and there's never been a bonding agent like this before. So they go and submit the patent. What does the AI then able to do that previously, you know, it would take who knows how many hours for an examiner to look through? 
So the first thing that we would do when we get the application, and there's a lot of suppositions in the example, uh, and I'll say that because many entrepreneurs find the task of submitting an application almost daunting. And so they yeah. bring in lawyers, specifically intellectual property lawyers, to actually apply for them. And so the supposition that an entrepreneur does this might not actually be correct, but that's okay. We're su assuming that someone has made the application. As soon as that comes in, one of the things we have to do is make sure it's been classified correctly. And so that's on the application. And that classification process can go through an artificial intelligence search to ensure in a quick way that it's classified correctly. Now, we actually have our examiners do that right now. We're trying to figure out if artificial intelligence can classify things better. We're not there yet, but that's one of the strong possibilities. Now, say it's classified correctly, it gets to the right examiner. Now we're talking about the searching around the world, whether or not it can be unique and novel. And so in that regard, you have to do the conceptual searching for this type of product. Now, you said it was glue. So that's yeah. really good. That narrows it down. But what if something was used for not as glue for something else? You have to also have that concept that it puts two things together rather than it glues something together. So now all of a sudden you're coming in with a faceter concept. And that is what the artificial intelligence can do. It can suggest to you other concepts that you might not have thought about because glue is very specific, but faceting is different. Yeah, that's a really abstract concept you just kind of hit on. And you're saying that algorithmically, it, these suggestions are currently being made, that it would recognize that this is not just glue, that the chemical is glue, but the fastening utility is actually what it recognizes and brings back all the different submissions for effectively connecting objects. Right? <laughs> like that sounds exactly crazy. Right. It has to be compared to everything, like I guess, in order to get a patent granted. That's correct. You have to make sure it's done correctly. So that's the searching that we're going through right now. For me to say that that's available for all examiners is incorrect. We are currently going through the research and the requirements in order to make sure that we're doing it correctly. We have to get a lot of feedback from the examiners before we put it out to the entire patent core. And the same thing can be said for trademark examiners too. Let's not forget those trademarks are very important for the flow and growth of our economy. So let me, let me ask you, let's take our example now to software because so I'll bring up one that I remember seeing a case about, but it ultimately got dismissed. Someone was trying to say that they were the first to have swipe to refresh, you know, like that was something that someone patented. When it, when it comes to software functions, what specifically does the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office have to be able to provide your examiners in order to, exa because software is so, and to me, it's very abstract. It's one thing to lay out your code, but typically software companies aren't patenting their code. They're patenting the function, like what the code accomplishes, where they're trying to at least. And a lot of times in my mind, it's very abstract. Like they're saying like, oh, this is a new way to index, you know, quantitative data for NLP purposes and so on. So are you at that level where your AI is helping you identify other patents previously submitted that are just like that? Or does that require like a deeper inspection from people inside the office? Well, it requires a deeper inspection from everyone. And I say that because as a neophyte, to the realm of intellectual property, I'm no lawyer. And there is a lot of things that I don't understand. 
But one of the things that I do understand is the complexity of software to the point where you might not want to patent a certain piece of software. You might want to copyright it. And that is two totally different things. The copyright is the expression of that art, whereas the patent says it's unique and novel. A copyright is something that is specific to an individual author, whereas a patent applies all over. So the copyrights are not even done at the USPTO. That's done in the Copyright Office under the uh, Library of Congress. So it's very interesting how these different agencies need to coordinate in order to make this an entire intellectual property uh, community. That being said, most of your listeners would like to know probably that the fourth and final piece of the intellectual property puzzle is the FBI and trade law. So the fact of the matter is the FBI is given the authority to enforce intellectual property laws through the trade laws. Every corporation has their own secrets. Every corporation is, you know, they can keep that and prevent it from being stolen. The FBI is the ones who actually prosecute. So they gather the evidence and they prosecute these cases for us. And remember, a patent, a trademark, a copyright is only as good as you're willing to defend it. And so because of that, when you bring the FBI in, they are gathering evidence to prosecute people who are infringing on your intellectual property. So now that we've had that discussion, we can go back to the whole software thing and say, well, should it be a copyright being that you recognize everybody else is there, but this individual use is the way I'm using it versus a unique and novel process that has never been thought before. Whoa. And now is that complex or what? <laughs> so there's no doubt. I mean, I can't get my mind around it. And, and so <laughs> with what you're talking about, all these different departments and agencies, I didn't feel as much of that frustration, but I know people feel frustration because they feel like they roadblocked in that end. And I know that you have a very difficult task of making this process as simple as possible, given the fact that it is, it is a complicated process to begin with to, to grant a patent. And it, I personally believe, this is just my personal opinion, that patents should not be easily granted. Like You have to really prove. I would think we live in a world that's better if like patents are, are very difficult to obtain. So I'm, I'm on the side of the office. Curiously for yourself, when you walked in, when you walked in uh, to the office, what were some of the things that you noticed that you saw opportunities right away to modernize the process? Because you kind of mentioned it a couple of times now that you were looking to modernize this process, that you wanted it half the time, every three years, you want it half the time that it takes to examine a patent. What were some of the things you noticed right away that you were like, hey, if we solve, this is, some pro this is a problem worth solving? Sure. There's the external part of that, like what would the public benefit from? And then there's the internal part where what would the actual PTO and our normal working, right? So you got to clean up your house before you can, you know, show it off to everybody and have a party. So what I saw was the ability to actually outsource a lot of our infrastructure. And that means not actually having the data center that we currently do in Alexandria. Although it's very efficient, what we need to do is have resiliency. And so what I'd like to do is create the ability for our applications to work in the cloud, on the internet, instead of having to come to the USPTO's data center. And so that's what we're doing right now. We've stabilized our core applications to the point where in COVID-19, we've been able actually to increase our productivity metrics. It's unbelievable 
how great we're doing in this limited environment. And people are applying more. So that's a great thing. But everybody is working remotely now and our actually productivity numbers are up year over year. So that's a great thing. The opportunity I'll have now is to create a more efficient, cost-effective infrastructure with network, hardware, software. And that means going to the cloud and using both private cloud and public cloud such that if anything goes down, no one would even notice. Right now, we have a very archaic way to fail over. It's effective. It will work. But I would like to have a more efficient failover where no one even notices. And so that's the first thing I saw when I came on board was the fact that we really should be just having a active, active resiliency that's physical. In other words, if something happens on the West Coast and it affects our data center there, no one will even notice because our Eastern data center will have picked it up and runs without notice. You know, you had mentioned earlier before, I didn't realize this, the U.S. Patent Trademark Office runs off of its own revenues, its own fees, right? It collects fees. It doesn't take any tax revenue. It collects fees. It has to operate within that budget. When you first presented this transformation idea that you were going to move your core infrastructure and hardware potentially to cloud services, what was the initial reaction when you first brought this up? Was it like, yes, obviously we need to do this? Or Jamie, that's a a big number you're asking for. (laughs) Well... It was twofold, right? The first was, yes, we need to do that. Of course, that makes sense. And the second thing is you bring up, how much is it going to (laughs) cost? The answer is what you can do is bring down your cost savings and use those savings to actually invest in your transformation. So whatever you're going to save, you turn around and use that money to invest for further savings in the future. And that produces the right incentive. It's a commercial incentive because if you save money now, in the future, you can use that same monies that you had to invest in better products and that saves more money. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what I'm trying, that change of heart, that change of mind is what I'm trying to get in throughout the organization. Because a lot of people will say, well, you still have to comply. And the answer is yes, of course, but we want to just do enough compliance that we're not, you know, we have to follow the law. There's no doubt. But at the same time, we want to modernize to the point where we're more efficient. As an example, think about all the um, things that happen every day in the commercial world. When you go to bed at night, your phone is put on your nightstand, you regenerate the power, and in the morning, you have all these new functions. That's the way it should be in the federal government as well. We should have that expectation. And the answer is, yeah, but there's no way that's possible. Well, of course it's possible. We can do this. We just have to change our mindset. And then we have to physically figure out in the budgeting about those savings and investment. The biggest problem with the federal government is everybody is trying to save all these failed projects. The thing about it is they don't know how to cut bait. They'd rather keep fishing to make sure that they overcome whatever the problem is that they had. And the answer is, you don't need to throw good money after bad. Stop doing what you're doing within a 90-day period and start something else that's more successful. Build on success. And if you fail, then only fail a little. Don't fail a lot. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's like the cardinal mantras, right? Of all the f- famous tech companies, move fast, break things. The lean startup concepts to be as lean as possible to prove your, uh, you know, your minimum viable product and service. I mean, it makes total sense what you're talking about. That a lot of times the weight of government agencies are spent, like you said, keeping alive programs or projects that don't need to be kept alive for whatever reason. I'm curious for yourself. You know, you have such a to me, you have a very interesting career. Uh, from I'm not gonna. I won't say the dates you attended West Point, but you did attend. <laughs> you did. You did attend West Point. Got your degree in computer science. It looks like you served. You know, you did service as a platoon leader, a company commander. You've built eBay for cotton before as a CTO. You've been all. You know, your your career spanned a great deal. Let's walk back a little bit to the days of you being at West Point. Uh, you're obviously studying computer science at the time. What did you think you were going to end up doing with the knowledge you were gaining? Well, that's a great question because computer science wasn't even its own department. We were actually stuck in the Department of Geography. <laughs> <laughs> Geography and computer yep. science. It was <laughs> awesome. One department. You know? And uh, I actually, as a as a sophomore, I went down on assignment as a cadet to the Defense Mapping Agency. And that was a precursor to the NGA, the National Geospatial Agency. And at the Defense Mapping Agency for a summer, I actually taught other engineers and, and enlisted folks DB2, the new relational database systems. So that's how old it is. Anyway, I didn't know what was going to be going on, but I did know that I needed to apply the computer science discipline into the battlefield. And my senior project actually gave me the best example of that. I took terrain data from Landsat, and that, that is the constellation of land satellites that are bringing in all of your surface information around the world. We overlaid that onto intelligence data within an Apple IIe, if you can believe it. And that was put in the back of a Cuck V, not a Humvee. But a CUCV, a CUCV is a commercial utility cargo vehicle. And back then it was the old Chevy Bronco. And we put an Apple IIe in the back of a a Chevy Bronco. I'm sorry, a Chevy Blazer. A Blazer, yeah. (laughs) And the general would come in the back and we'd show him the battlefield on that silly little screen. And he'd be able to figure out where the enemy was and where all the different parts and pieces of the battlefield was so he could create his operational situation and then create war plans from that. So it was always about how to make the computer and communications work for the battlefield commander, how to put steel on target better, cheaper, and faster. So when you map that out, that was one of your first projects, were the people that used it, the commanders that were using that information, were they impressed by what you did or were they like, were they not impressed? <laughs> Well, some of it worked and some of it didn't. So they had both reactions. Of course, you get the old sergeants who are there from Vietnam. Goddamn thing didn't work back then. It's not going to work now. But of course, you had the visionaries and the people who really said, no, this is the future. We really need to understand and learn that. And so whenever you have that organizational shift, you're going to have your detractors. You're going to have your proponents. What you need to do is get them both together so that to get the best of both worlds, you got to win over the skeptics and you got to take those proponents and just steamroll it over. You're going to change and you need to have those people that are cheerleading for you doing the right thing. 
So you go from your time in service, when you were finished serving and you entered the private sector, what did you think you were going to do with your knowledge? I'm curious because I'd love to know how your career trajectory changed because it's it's very fascinating, all the different places that you've been the leader of. Yeah, actually. So after the military, I spent a little stint in intelligence and it was very similar to the military, very disciplined and so forth, which I really liked. But the whole Internet boom was coming out. And so I actually went from intelligence into the commercial world with the telecommunication agencies. And they were starting out on e-commerce. And if you remember way back when, there was something called MCI Friends and Family, where you could put everybody that's on your family on your own phone plan. This is all so long ago. Was MCI, it was acquired or converted to WorldCom, correct? And then they had the big scandal and fell apart. Exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) So I actually worked at the Bell South uh, family of companies and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and we created friends and family for Bell South and their cell phone network. And so that was a huge project. And it really showed the difference between the government, military, industrial complex and the commercial world in the telecommunications industry for me. I learned so much about how it was different and how it was the same. And so I took that knowledge and then went into the e-commerce consulting realm where I actually brought Blockbuster.com up and functional right before its IPO. And that to me was a fascinating study of business in America because it was being moved by Hosanga from Miami over to Dallas. And I was working in Dallas and they had this project that was spanning 17 months and it was failing and everything else. And we got it up and running before the Thanksgiving holiday uh, before 2000. And I'll never forget it because that was Y2K. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is everybody thought the world was going to come to an end. All the computers are going to stop. And of course, what happened? Nothing. So it was a big goose egg, which was really great that we were able to overcome all those fears that if you do it right and you have the right discipline, you can overcome almost anything. I think we're going through that some of that right now in effect of COVID-19 and warp speed. I mean, you look at the incentives that were given to the commercial private industries and you're like, oh my gosh, in 10 months we have a vaccine? It's phenomenal. American innovation, bar none, the incentives are there. Private property and intellectual property are huge. That's why I love what I do every day. So let's bring it back now full circle because you, you know your career spanned many different sectors. What then brought you back to government? The reason why I mention that is because you've been part of fast growth startups. You've been part of huge corporations. You've IPO'd. You've, got, you've done all kinds of cool stuff, even served as CEO of a company. What brought you to say, okay, the US Patent Office was where I belong? You know, I got to tell you, in all honesty, it was Director Andre Yanku who asked me to join the USPTO because of the challenges that he faced and the growth that he wanted to create within your agency to make it better for the U.S. economy. Hey, you know, I bleed red, white, and blue. It's like, it's, it's something. And so when he made that pitch to me, and then he showed me all the different things within the agency and how great an agency it truly was, I was just so darn motivated. I, I couldn't say no. Gotcha. 
So talk to me about now where we are today, you know, in a time of, like you said, in a time of COVID, time of pandemic, what do you notice happening at the U.S. Patent Office? I'm assuming that patent applications like are going up through the roof because there's more people, prob- I'm assuming, more because more people are out of work or underemployed. I've noticed that when that happens, times of innovation kind of start. Innovation and necessity starts to happen. I remember listening to a podcast with a uh, CEO of e-commerce platform Shopify, and he said like he recognized in the financial crisis of 2008 that more stores opened than ever. And so I'm wondering, is it, do you see the same thing in the innovation side? Are people applying for more patents than ever? I'm curious what it looks like. Exactly. I'm glad to report that during the initial stages of COVID-19, we did see a spike in applications for patents. It has since leveled off and maybe it's not the same year over year, but we did notice that spike. What's really interesting is we've noticed a huge growth in our trademark applications. And you're like, what? Yes, year over year, we're knocking it out of the park with applications. We're something on the order of 20 or 40% ahead month over month. And it's like, what's going on? So obviously the smart money is getting out ahead of the curve so that when the opportunity is right, they can strike and strike hard. So I do think what you're saying is very true. Entrepreneurs are out there because of the situation they face. And when you're just sitting there pondering things, I do think you come up with different ways, innovation, creativity. Boy, I bet nobody's done this before. So I'm encouraging everyone to take those thoughts and make application. Now, then we have the obligation to make sure it's rewarded, uh, awarded or rejected as soon as we can for as little money as we have to take. And so that's, again, why I get so excited about things. So one of the things... You know, I know you're not allowed to talk about anything that's pending, but what are when you when you you obviously see things that no one else sees, right? <laughs> or you get to see them first. When you see the innovation that's coming through, what what are some how does that I guess impact your feelings for what's going to happen in the future? Uh, what does the future society look like? You know, what innovation do you see coming down the pipe? Because you you sit in a unique spot where you're literally in charge of how information flows inside of the U.S. Patent Trademark Office, which means you see what's being granted, which means you see what's being rejected. And I didn't know if like, you know, are we entering a world where there's a lot of biomedical patents being filed where it's like, man, we're going to really live a lot longer. Are people filing all types of, you know, photo filters apps where it's going to be like, yeah, I don't know if that's going to make the world a better place. Yeah. You're going to look pretty cool on your camera, but you know, <laughs> this might not be a game changer. I didn't know if you had any inkling as to, and what your feelings are in regards to what you think, how the future is going to look. I think the future is bright. You got to wear shades. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's an old reference, but I will tell you, I'm very excited about the world to come. It will be very different than the world we're in right now. And I think it's going to be 10 times better. People don't realize how much the smartphone changed their life for the better. It's just an accepted thing now. But when you think about all the inventions that are coming up, especially IoT, the Internet of Things, and for every device to be connected or at least smartly connected but securely connected, We cannot even imagine what our life is going to be like, even in five years from now. It's going to be phenomenal. 
So in order to do that, we need to ensure that we have the incentives for innovation. We can't put a wet blanket on top of all this creativity and growth. We have to let it grow. We have to give it sunlight. And so I'm really excited about the artificial intelligence algorithms that are trying to be patented and copyrighted. And I say that because some of your listeners would probably like to know that the um, patent office made a decision. And this decision is out there that an applicant must be a human being or a corporation or represent the entity of a human being. It cannot, an applicant cannot be an algorithm. An applicant cannot be artificial intelligence. Because we recently had a couple of patents that were submitted by, quote, artificial intelligence. And so this is me speaking with my layman's understanding, but just as a piano cannot copyright a song that's played on it, artificial intelligence cannot patent something that it's made from it. Well, I'm super excited for AI and its impacts on health, health outcomes specifically. I'm always curious about what are the next big innovations in biomedical procedure, environmental, energy. Like those are some of the things I think that will fundamentally shift the way we live. So it's it's awesome to hear from you that some of these applications that are being filed right now are, you know, in those game-changing sectors. Amen. <laughs> well, Jamie, you know what it's time for right now? It's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Jamie, this is where we ask you fast questions so that our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? I am ready. Okay. First question, do you own or are you on any patents? I do not own and I do not author any patents. <laughs> Have you ever had a brilliant idea that you thought, hmm, I should patent that? I, yes, I have a napkin that I wrote on between Honolulu and New York in the year 1986, where I outlined the thoughts for Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, oops, that, that you should have done it. Should have, would have, could have. Should have, would have, could have. What do you do when you're not at work for fun? So my family is a big part of my life. We go hiking and camping, and I love to golf. Big avid golfer? I would say I play army golf. Left, right, left, right, left. <laughs> so you, you're an avid golfer, but you might not be that good at golfing. Is that accurate? Correct. Exactly right. <laughs> Are there any parts of the military that you miss? Oh, I miss the camaraderie. The, when you're on the ground in a battle and you're in the thick of things, that is true friendship. That's camaraderie. That is depending upon your, your brothers in arm and your sisters in arm. It's a phenomenal feeling. I feel sorry for those folks who have never served in the military because it is truly an honor to serve for this country. And, and the people that serve are just Great folks. No, I, lo I love the passion in which you speak about that. What are some habits or, or hobbies that you've picked up since work from home started? Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to learn the harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> harmonica. Yes. It, it's, I'm not that good. So, <laughs> Jamie, I love it. You, I mean, you got a lot of hobbies. You don't have to be good at anything. You just got to enjoy doing it. The process, if you will. Yeah, I think I'm driving my wife crazy, though, about all the different chords. 
What's the best advice you could give to someone who is about to take on the role of CIO at a company? The first thing you have to realize is it's not about technology. It's all about the people. And I will say no one is your friend. (laughs) (laughs) And just realize that just like it was in the army for me, right? If somebody picks up a phone and you don't hear dial tone, you're wrong. But no matter what, if they pick up that dial tone, they're not going to say thank you for the dial tone being there. So realize it's a thankless job, but somebody's got to do it. I couldn't have, uh, that's the best advice I think I've heard in a long time, which is something I subscribe to. Uh, you know, I like it. No one is your friend you got, and you have a job and duty to do. It's thankless, but you got to do it. So if, you, if you're looking for lots of pats on the back, might be the wrong industry for you. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie, I want to thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. I want to thank you for sharing your stories from all the way from your time at West Point in the geography department, which happened to have a computer science element, all the way to now leading as CIO at the U.S. Patent Trademark Office. Jamie, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.